Welcome to another Beef Educator Series podcast. My name is Ryan Larson. I'm here with Drs. Eric Thacker and Matt Garcia. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. In this podcast, we wanted to review. We've had three great producer interviews. We want to review some of the key takeaways that we've had from each one of those. We started with uh, Christian Peterson, who who's out of Wyoming. Uh, we had the Crandall family uh, based in uh, Sp- Springville and uh spend part of their time in Wyoming and then John Ferry was our was our last one each one of them had unique operations and and I think there's some key takeaways that we could use from each of those interviews uh, let's uh, Eric if that's okay let's start with Christian Peterson what were some of the key takeaways you know as as we listen to some of his his operations and maybe just review with us real quick you know what made his operation unique so I, I think one of the most interesting things about Christian's situation is, um, I think first off he approached it as a business decision and the way his operation was functioning in that, um, you know, his family historically run cow-calf. Um, as he's coming back to the ranch, he determined he needed something different to make it work. And so uh, I think starting off, I like the fact that he was open he looked at what he had, you know, to make some, you know, because of changes in the family operation, he had mostly summer pasture with no winter pasture. So rather than trying to kind of force a square peg into a round hole and keep doing what the family had done for generations, he um, he went the, the yearling route where he's, he's buying and selling stalkers. Um, I also think it's interesting because I think his system is relatively well set up for stalkers because he's got a lot of forage of relatively high quality available, you know, for a, a short window of time, which lends itself to kind of the stalker operation. So I think that's the thing kind of overall that stood out to me is that this was, you know, he kind of got to do a reset, evaluated what, what, what he actually had to use. And then instead of trying to force it to fit, you know, a particular type of operation, he let, you know, his resources select the type of operations running now. So I, I like that approach um, <clears throat> versus, you know, deciding you're a cow-calf operator and then that's what you're going to do. And so, you know, it's certainly outside the box, I think, because I'm pretty sure he's the only one doing it up there right now. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you hit it right on the head. I think the thing that was really impressive about him was, you know, he could have kind of fallen into the trap that I think a lot of us producers kind of fall into when our situation changes. You know, he had that situation change with the family and the resources. And like you said, rather than trying to, to fit the, the production system that he had been in, he said, okay, this is the resources I have available to me. These are the type of animals I have or I'm gonna need in order to make this work because of his pasture, his grazing strategy, but also because of his predator situation that he talked about. So he really kind of looked at it as a way as, okay, this is what I got, how can I maximize this? I think that was something that's very unique and you know kind of refreshing to hear because I think traditionally when the situation changes we just keep doing the same thing whether it's we downsize or we increase our production costs to keep doing it the same way. So it was refreshing to see him say, okay, I'm gonna kind of like Dr. said, you know, I'm just gonna do a reset. I'm gonna see what I got and I'm gonna make it work from that. Well, and I, I think. And that, that applies to more than just beef production systems, that's life. But I think in the scenarios we're seeing play out now where this family dynamics have changed and 
family operations have changed. Um, I think being able to take a good, hard, fresh look at you know what's what's on the ground, what do you actually have, and then using it to your advantage. I think that's the other thing that that you know stood out is he, he actually worked to his strength rather than right. just coming up with an idea and trying to make it fit. And Christian didn't come with your traditional. He went and studied animal science or ag business or, I mean, uh, he geology. Yeah, geology. Yeah, so I. So he, yeah, you know, he he took my range class and it was quite interesting because he came in to see me before and said, "Look, I'm a geology student, but the job market for geology is not real great right now, and plus I'm kind of toying with going back to family place or whatever, you know." So, but I think one of the things that. Again, I think this applies way beyond just beef production, but his Christian became a student, right? And meaning that he, he makes informed decisions, he studies things out, and, you know, I kind of chuckle because I, I think he became, you know, over the course of a few months, pretty much an expert, you know, in kind of a yearling operation. He knew where the break-even points were. He knew, you know, where he was going to find these cattle, how they were marketed. He knew, you know, so... <clears throat> But I, I think that's a good, uh, should be a good example for other young producers that are, you know, looking to to move into the production systems to be able to, um, you know, take a good hard look at things. I, and I think that's one of the things that's helped Christian be successful is his ability to be objective about the information he's looking at. Yeah, he came back and he brought value, right? I always say, if you're going back to the farmer ranch, what value are you bringing? You can tell just through the conversation, he's brought value back to the, the operation. That, that was impressive to me. One thing that took me by surprise when I asked about his greatest risk was safety, right? The safety of his cowboys, the safety of his help with with predators, with grizzly bears. You know, it's, it's I wasn't expecting that, but that's right for his operation. That's probably one of his greatest risks. Yeah, no, I, he, he's, he's an interesting, it's an interesting operation that he's got up there and he's got an interesting approach. So certainly got plenty of challenges with everything from poisonous plants to large predators on top of the market risks and yeah. everything else, so. Well, the fact that he was also talking about how he acquired those animals, you know, cause he's having to essentially acquire a new herd every year and how he had kind of figured out where he could get animals that were going to be adapted to a system that were going to produce in that system. You know, he's really kind of thought this whole thing out very well to be successful in what he planned out. Because if he hadn't done that, do you just imagine the disaster <laughs> that would have been if he just said, I'm just going to go at this and not really kind of evaluate my resources, my system, my animals, my labor, my risk, everything involved? It seems like he's really kind of taking a holistic approach to it. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, my early involvement with Christian was, you know, after taking the class, was to call me and ask about, you know, stocking rates and grazing management. And then, so I, I think that's the other side of this is that he didn't make, he made some risky decisions because mm -hmm. just starting that type of operation in an area where there's nobody else doing it, there's, he, he certainly took some risk, but I think that's, you know, risk and reward kind of balance each other out. But it wasn't an uninformed risk. I think that's the difference between just getting a wild hair and trying something versus, you know, thinking it through. He thought he's grazing through. He thought um, shipping and all of those other things. He kind of thought all that through. And so I, it's it's an interesting. I, I think it highlights kind of a novel approach to a 
to a problem that other people may be facing in that their operations changed over time as it's divided up with family changes or other things. Well, I think that's a that that risk talk and that that transition kind of is a good good transition to kind of our next producers as well. You know, because you think about the Crandalls, the Crandall family, uh, Calvin and and uh, Rhett were the two that were on the call with us. You know, they really kind of adapted that operation, changed that operation over time, and try to improve that operation to increase productivity, whether it's pasture management, like they were talking about, you know, grazing quick and getting off, or, you know, putting water strategically to, to more utilize pasture, but then also kind of delegating duties and, you know, kind of the financial duties and the, the crop duties and the ranch duties and then the marketing duties and kind of looking for a kind of a novel, novel way to market kind of a niche product, you know, to, to the market. So I, I think that, you know, the, the Crandalls, what was really impressive about them is they, they kind of looked at it um, from, from a system approach. You know, they were really trying to maximize that system and really trying to not necessarily, you know, kind of do what, what uh, Christian was doing, but at the same time, in relation, kind of manage that risk. But, but now I think the other thing that's that's interesting, and this 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 theme kind of runs through all three of these producers, and I, I don't think we necessarily intended this when we set up these first three, but all three of them have come back to an operation. You know, John Ferry, Crandall's, and Christian, they've all come back to a family operation. They've kind of given a critical evaluation of what resources they had. I think John Ferry's a great example. Right. And they made decisions based upon building on their strengths rather than trying to make it something that wasn't. Right. Um, and so I, I, you know, that's that's kind of a common theme between the three is um, they've, they've come back to the operation with some added value and then they've, you know, looked at um, their system. Because, because again, I think the other thing that that is, as I've gone on in my career, that really stands out to me is there's no cookbook solutions right. to, to any of this, you know, because each of those operations are entirely different. They're in different parts of the country. They're, but the, the common thread is, you know, a good objective look at what their strengths were and, and playing to those and, and finding a way to make it all work versus trying to force it to fit yeah. a preconceived notion of what it should look like. And I think the thing that really kind of impressed me with, with the Crandalls as well and I don't know. I don't know if this was intended or not, but I think they all, all the family members that were involved had some were obviously capable on the ranch side, but then their outside careers complemented the ranch side as well. Because you had Rhett, who's kind of on the economics, financial side, and I believe he said he had a son who was um, an engineer. Yep. And then his other son was full time on the ranch, and I can't remember what he said his daughter was doing, but I, I, from what I remember, all the outside type of things gelled very well with what they were trying to do and how they were going to kind of go forward in the future. Yeah, because merging all, each one of those sons or daughters into the operation, right? I mean, that's not an easy task because each one brings a different skill set, but it sounded to me like, right, we, we, they were figuring out a way to do that. Right. And, 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 you know, 
another common theme, you know, you talk about common themes is I think is that managerial flexibility, right? Each one of these operations has adapted dramatically over time, right? Analyzing those resources and, and saying, you know what, what can we do different for the Crandalls? You know, they implemented that intensive grazing right? and they, you know, and they credit that to, to changing their operation and the economic impact of that. And, you know, with, with Christian, with his, with his yearling operation, each one you'd look at and say, wow, that's a pretty big change. But I think each one of them have approached it from a very analytical, you know, let's let's look at each one of these aspects of it yeah. and how will that impact our operation. Well, I think from an analytical standpoint, you really got to talk about John Barry. <laughs> I mean, because if you're, you're talking about analyzing the whole system and breaking it down to pennies, you know, I think John really had that that kind of that almost mastered just in terms of what you're talking about, looking at the resources and thinking outside the box, just from the feeding aspect that you talked to us about from, what was it, peppermint silage, cereal, yogurt byproduct, what was it, cookies? Goldfish, potato chips. Yeah, so you really kind of figured out, these are some, some resources that not only can I get at a, at a cost that is probably much cheaper than what my normal high quality alfalfa or corn or some of this other stuff is, but my cows are still performing. So I found that very interesting that not only had he kind of, he looked at that from what it was gonna cost him. He, he, I mean, he flat out told us, I'll call these guys or they'll call me and I will tell them exactly what I can pay for that. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the spreadsheets, but they're, they're actually pretty phenomenal. Yeah, no, they, I get a little jealous when I see those spreadsheets out there. And, and to me, it highlights that each one of these, oper- these you know, to say a, to farm a ranch is a simple occupation. You just can't say that anymore. These, each one of these are sophisticated thinkers, both analytical on the, on the animal side. You know, John, uh, the phrase he used is he says uh, his cattle need nutrients mm-hmm. and he doesn't care where he gets them from. He says, he says the traditional methodology is they ha- it has to come from alfalfa, wheat, barley, or corn. He says they need nutrients. Let me find the best and cheapest way to get them those nutrients. And, you know, I, I, when he said that, I thought, man, that's – that's a pretty cool way to, to look at that issue and, and to understand that each one of those has a value and to value them, not to just say, and, and one thing he said later, he said, I have a reputation among all these people selling these byproducts that they trust him right? because he gives them a value that's fair. Not, I'm not going to take it for free, but Hey, here's the value of it. And so they all trust him and he's built a reputation where he has access to all this, these byproducts. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the big thing. With all, the, with all these guys that we, we interviewed, his reputation was something that I think was very important to all of them in terms of, you know, I, I'm being an outside thinker and being respected in the industry. And I think all three of them are very, very well respected. And I think, I think with John in particular, you know, kind of like you said, he's, he's realized that there's not only value in, in the feed that he can get for those cattle, but there's values in that relationship with those people as well. One thing that was surprising with John, um, Eric, was the, the the wildlife discussion, right? I mean, he talks about diversifying his operation, and wildlife is one of his methods of diversification. Not a traditional method by any means, but he truly has leveraged his area and that resource to well, diversify. If, if you think about and I'm, I'm going to broaden up a little bit here because I think it makes the point, but if you think about it, what, what a ranch actually is is you have capital and the capital is your land base right and so in reality the reason ranching's worked in the west is because 
people have had a lot of land that wouldn't do much other than grow grass, right? Yep. And so the reason there were cattle there to begin with is because it would grow grass and because of vast areas, low inputs, I could raise beef at a competitive cost, right, to, to other operations. Um, but I think as long as you stay broad in that thinking, it's, it's interesting to, to think a little bit about more broadly in terms of just that capital, because I think that's where John comes in is not only is that block of land that he got producing grass, it's also producing, in his case, ducks, right? And lo and behold, people are willing to pay for the opportunity to harvest ducks. So I think his little bit broader way of thinking about that, instead of thinking of his ranch as the cattle, but thinking of it as that block of land, I think is where that thinking starts. Um, in being a little bit more broad. And there's a surprising number of producers looking to expand. And wildlife, I think, is one of the easiest, most compatible uses that you can overlay over the top of a, of a ranching operation. I mean, there's several examples around the state. You know, Desert Land and Livestock's one that is often kind of put up on a pedestal because um, there's years there. Their wildlife revenue outpaces their livestock revenue, especially during those market slumps, and they're unapologetic about the fact that that helps them weather those bad years. Um, so I think it's, it, it is an interesting way of approaching it, but I think it's, um, and it is one of the most compatible. There, like I said, there's the Cooperative Wildlife Management Unit program in Utah. Uh, it's catered more to big game, but a lot of the ranches around the state of, of you know, it's a way that they can benefit from managing for wildlife um, instead of seeing them as a as a problem, they become a revenue source. Um, well, I think John said it too, kind of in the middle of his presentation was, you have to, he, he has to be diversified to be successful and profitable. So he has the cow-calf operation, he has the custom feeding operation, he has the finishing operation, he's diversified into the hunting and wildlife side of things, he still has the crops because he's growing alfalfa and he talked about how, I, I believe he said he could take his high quality alfalfa, sell it, and buy stuff. Buy the cheap stuff back. Back for, for his cattle that are speaking out. So he's, he's not only diversified, but he's maximized those resources where he can get them. But all of this conversation we've had it from Christian to the Crandalls to this all takes record keeping, right? right. At, a, at, a, at a higher level than I do. You know, in my personal life, per se, but because the only way he knows he can do that is he knows exactly what it's worth, right. what he has and what it's worth and what the market is, right? And so he's able to make financial decisions based upon that information. And I think that's probably, it's, again, we talked about common threads between the three. I think that's the other common thread because, again, Christian could tell you exactly where his break-even point was for every one of those yearlings. And when I was on the phone with him recently, he was concerned he'd lost a few due to large square, and so he already knew what that meant for his profit margin for the year, you know, so he knew exactly what that each of those animals went down cost. So I think that level of record keeping then helps them make a more informed decision, because if you don't know what your hay's worth or what you need to feed, then you can't make that decision. It's, right. it's, it, would be a, it would be viewed as a very risky decision, when in reality, there's not a lot of risk associated with it. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what John said when he asked, when we ask about risk management, he says, managing and knowing my costs are, is probably my greatest risk management strategy. And that's, right? I mean, that's, that's built on the foundation of your, of your record keeping system, right? And then, then from there, you can use those, those records to understand and manage and control and to make decisions that, that, that without it, you couldn't do it. You couldn't make an informed decision. Well, I think that ties into kind of what I heard Crannels and Johnson as well, that record-keeping system. They, they both brought up that, that succession of the ranches. And that record-keeping system kind of lets that next generation know this is, this is what, it, what it has cost us to stay in business. This is what we have to do to stay in business. This is what we're going to have to change. And I think the thing that was kind of interesting to me that, that both of them said was th these were conversations they were already having. You know that they were, they were concerned about that transition to that next generation and you know how that was going to go, but you know just that record keeping alone I think kind of helps them kind of go forward. But I think the other thing was they're they're both very willing. One of the things we talk about in our succession plan a lot is the willingness to give up management responsibilities or leadership role. And both of them, I, and I, I believe it was Calvin, had said it a number of times. You know, there's some times I've gone to the family and said I want to do this, and that the boys and his daughter will tell him. That, that's a horrible idea. And he's willing to kind of hear why and potentially adjust. So I think that was another thing that was, that was pretty interesting with those, those groups. Well, coming back to the range side a little bit, uh, you know, both John Ferry and I know that Crandall's have a pretty, a pretty complex grazing system. But again, you know, and I keep coming back, this highlights record keeping. You know, John mentioned he knew each pasture that every animal had been in, he knew how many were there. Now, on the surface, those sound like simple numbers, but they become really powerful, especially even as you start mitigating uh, drought risk and everything else, because if you have those numbers across years, you can see where, where you're at in terms of your management. So I don't know how you would make those decisions otherwise, because uh, you're left to your own perception of what happened, which is not really that accurate most yeah. of the time. Yep. Yeah, I mean, some great common themes between all three. Uh, you know, I, I know I learned so much. It, I mean, it's it's kind of intimidating to talk to three successful ranching operations like this when you think, man, they they know so much. I mean, they uh, compared to sometimes what, what, what we think we know, they 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 know and they do. Um, so hopefully, in the future, we can keep finding ranches like that 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 are doing those type of things. Any any other key takeaways from those interviews? Yeah, I guess. You know, this is usually the caveat I give at the end of each of these podcasts. You know, I don't think anybody could to, could take kind of the blueprint that was presented by these ranchers and apply it directly to their own operation, right? And I don't think that's our intent is somebody starts their own operation that runs just like John Ferry or the Crandles or, or Christian Peterson, but look at the, the underlying principles that made their operation successful. So. You know, I hope as you listen to these podcasts, you'll, you'll identify those principles, your record keeping, uh, education, open-mindedness, objective decision-making, informed decision-making, yeah. risk mitigation. All of those things, I think in culmination, are what lead to success, the success of their operations. Um, you know, without, again, we come back to data, without good information, you can't make those, yeah. those informed decisions. Well, I think, too, the, the thing that I think will keep these operations successful is I, I don't think any of them are resting on their morals. 
I think they're all looking toward the future. They're all looking towards what challenges they're going to face from a, a family or a production operation or even an industry perspective. And they're already trying to put plans in place to kind of mitigate that risk as well. So I think, I think that's something that we, we tend to ignore. You know, we, we, we watch how they got there, but we don't watch where they're going. And I think a lot of these, these three producers in general are, are really looking forward to, to where they can continue to go. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a great way to to kind of put an end to this is understanding, right? That they're 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 skating to where the puck is going to be. They're not skating to where the puck is, and and that's why they're multi generational oper- operations, right? I mean, they have been around for a long time, and they'll continue to be around because of that. And I think those principles, Eric, I think that's exactly right. There's no cookie cutter way, but there's some common elements of successful operations. They keep records. They they do those things. That, that that keep them uh, economically sustainable and uh, environmentally sustainable and and all the, all those things that we define as sustainable operations. So, hopefully, you as listeners could take something from this. These are these are these are meant for you to educate and to learn and and to kind of help you think about your own operation. Hopefully, you can take some of these ideas and implement them into your own. And until next time, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch.